welcome to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines, changing the conversation around divorce. This show is sponsored by Penguin in the Room. Penguin in the Room is an award-winning arts, marketing and social media management company. If you want to jazz up your socials and have someone Instagram and tweet for you, then here's your answer. Go to www.penguinintheroom.com. As always, hit subscribe to make sure you're updated about new episodes. And we love to hear from you on social media at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. You can also email us all the infos on our website, thedivorcesocial.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com this episode, I'm speaking to another one of our wonderful The Divorce Social listeners. This is Jessica. We talk about being cat mums um, and also the idea of de-escalating dating, which I really enjoy. So just viewing it like you're going to go to a bar and have a nice cocktail and a person's going to be there. If they happen to be a great person, you see them again, awesome. But just viewing it as I get to go and have a nice cocktail, I think is an excellent way to approach the dating world. So enjoy this. I am joined by another listener of the podcast, Jessica. Welcome to The Divorce Social. Thank you. How does it feel to be on The Divorce Social? I feel really excited, but that's because I've listened to a lot of episodes and um and I think I'm a few years on from the divorce, so I can say it now and I'm less, you know, shaken by it, hopefully. So I'm happy to tell my story. So how long have you been listening to the podcast? Oh, I think almost from the whenever it started. It's been a few few years, right? Thank you for being with me on the journey. <laughs> I heard you on the Guilty Feminist podcast because that's a podcast that I listen to a lot. And um, yeah, and I think from there I was like, this is amazing. And I want him. <laughs> I mean, it was a strange episode of The Guilty Feminist because I was meant to be on talking about feminist divorce and then I spent the whole episode telling a story about a sexual conquest. Yeah, but I think I thought, okay, you're representing. I think you covered a little bit of the difficulty, but you also represented it in a positive way that I thought, yeah, like this is enjoyable. So um, I think that was nice. Okay, good. Well, thank you. That That's like a nice review of it. Whereas I was like, I just had some wine and started telling my friends about my sexual explosion post-divorce. Um, so, well, thank you for being on the journey with me. And you say you started listening a couple of years ago and you're a couple of years in. So do you want to take us back to where you were in the world and your life and when that separation happened? Yeah. Um, so I met my ex at university um, and we were both about 18, 19. 
so it was quite quite young and got together with friends for a year and then got together and it was very serious very quickly um, because we lived in a shared house with a few other people but effectively that meant we were living together from the beginning of going out and then we just stayed together we we're very committed moved to London together so we were at uni in Nottingham and then we moved into a flat um, and then just we're always together so we bought a house uh, we got married in um, 2008 um, and then we separated five years later so in total it was a 13 year relationship so a good old chunk of my um, young adulthood I guess. And that's interesting isn't it because I remember when I was going to uni I went to Exeter and people said like, oh, you'll you'll meet amazing people and you'll probably meet the person that you'll marry or like the love of your life at uni. So I guess for you, that was like, oh, that's exactly what happened. I've done it. Did it feel like, yeah, this is what you're meant to do. And I did it. Kind of. But I think I just was, um, I hadn't had, I met that many people I'd liked before. I had, you know, just teenage, uh, In I was brought up in Stoke-on-Trent, so I think I struggled to find people that I connected with and I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to be alone forever. You know, the very like dramatic teenage view of the situation was like, no one will ever like me. And then when I went to university, I realized, oh, there's always other people. And also because you're in the same kind of boat, you're all there to study. You get people who are maybe like more aligned to you in some ways because you've all chosen to move away from your hometown to do study. So it was I suddenly kind of the world opened up a bit and I realized oh relationships are possible and also you just it's so it's such a social time I've never been out as much as I did then so of course it's a great time to meet people yeah actually I felt like my post-divorce Sam was like uni Sam of like going out all the time and like freedom um without having to study yeah, I think that's a funny thing that happens. Like it happens similarly for me. Like when you, because you, once you kind of get over the heartbreak part of it, you, I felt I went a bit back to that age in a way because I was trying to remember who I was before this relationship took me on a different course that maybe changed me a lot. And those are really like formative years in your life, aren't they? Like moving away from home, studying, you know, further education. And you spent that with that person. So how did it feel when you were newly single? And as you said, you had to find yourself again and navigate that. Yeah, well, I think it was a huge, uh, it felt like a huge transition and it felt like my whole life was completely turned upside down. And I think I'd shaped so much of my identity around that person. Because as you say, like you're, it's formative and a lot of the things I did I probably would have been too shy to do alone so even things like moving down to London it's a big thing to do it's very scary at first and because I'd done that within that decision was made so easily in a relationship it was literally like I didn't I was saying what should we do and he said we'll just move down to London because we both need to get jobs and that's where the jobs are and it's fine Um, and he was from Surrey so I think like moving south for him was actually not as big a deal but for me it was like oh my god I'm not going to understand anything it's going to be scary I can't afford anything so it was cushioning those big life decisions for me and then when I was on my own I was suddenly realizing that I was 
kind of ill-equipped. I'd never lived alone as an adult, didn't have the faintest clue how I was going to manage anything. I can totally relate because I'd never lived alone. Like I'd already lived in a shared house or whatever. I'd never lived on my own in a house and had to do everything myself until I was getting divorced. And it's a lot to cope with as well as all the emotions. Completely. It's just like the whole, there's so many things that you just, because you've done them in a shared capacity, you've not really acquainted yourself with how like how was it done and it feels so stressful like DIY things there were things at the time that were wrong with the house there was a leak and and I was just like oh you know on top of everything else those things become major in a way that I think they were not before but it's like you're you're suddenly faced with is this you know, it's, it feels like a very long list of things that you're always trying to get on top of and you, you kind of have to come to peace with other people have to deal with them and how do I deal with them and I've got my techniques now. But it, that takes you quite a while, I think. And do you remember any like lessons you had at that time? Because I always, I've talked in the podcast before about mowing the lawn for the first time and being like, oh, I can do this. And also crying over a flat pack Ikea thing. Yeah, so um, the lawn mowing, yes, I did do that. I had done it a bit before, but um, it was, there seemed to be much more garden to maintain when I was on my own. There was like a bit at the front and there was a, a lawn on the slope that was very difficult to get around. So I must admit that I probably, I did rely on maybe help from other people. I think maybe I entertained like paying a gardener I was like maybe I can just do it very rarely and I just um and I remember the man next door at one stage saw me like struggling with things in the garden and he just that was a family next door and he looked over and said I'm going to be doing my lawn later I'm not promising anything but I might be able to help you and I was like okay um and I felt that it seemed very I thought you're a charity case (laughs) (laughs) a bit like that I had a similar thing with my next door neighbors because they're a couple and very lovely and um I was always sort of saying you know when it's funny isn't it because I've never felt gender roles more and I think of myself as quite you know a liberal person and like anyone can do whatever they want but I've never felt more like a stereotypical woman can't do DIY as when I first got divorced and I was like, I need a man to do these things. And I was like, what? This is a weird sensation. I used to get the next door neighbor to do it. And actually you learn to do some of it, don't you? And then also you just pay people and it doesn't matter what gender they are. But it is that weird thing of, I felt very like a stereotypical woman. Yeah. And we were quite, we both had parents who, I think are quite st- stereotypical in their genders. Like we, you know, got the mom has done most of the domestic stuff and the cooking and the dad has a shared and does all the DIY stuff. We both had that in our families. So I think there was some of that in the marriage where we probably expected ourselves to have those responsibilities. And I tried really hard to do wife stuff. Like I was really going, doing courses on cooking was trying to be able to do everything as well as that we both had full-time jobs and I think that is part of the challenge for people of our generation is that 
we do have these inbuilt expectations of each other that you should be able to handle all this stuff like our parents, but also we're both doing career things and we're actually trying to have equality. But I think there's part of us that kind of thinks, well, if the other person isn't doing these things, they're somehow not delivering what maybe we we don't want to feel, but we kind of have that in us that we expected the person would help with certain things. And if they don't, it's a bit like, oh, okay, you know, we have to navigate that. It's very challenging. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know about you, well, you said with the cooking course, that I definitely felt the pressure of what I had imagined wife to be and that I wasn't living up to that because I'm not very good at cooking. And, you know, I was off doing career things more than my partner. So um, I felt very much like I was letting the side down. Yeah, a very yeah, that was a very big thing for us and the expectation of the domestic. And I took on more of it naturally from right at the beginning. And I was excited at first to be able to cook for someone. And I loved like doing those things for a while. Um, and then I think as I grew in my job and I grew in confidence and I started to think, well, actually, I don't want to, to be doing all of these things. And I was asking for help a lot. And then there was the thing of you're nagging. And I think, again, that's a very gendered word because we don't hear about men nagging very often. But it was like, for me, they were that was an attempt of, you know, please can we split chores and can you help with this and that was always very hard and I was and I did one of the negative things for me about going through the divorce was that I did beat myself up a lot about whether I had been a good enough wife or the things I wanted to to be and it was very like you know I felt like I wanted to have a really nice home and make we have dinner parties which is quite weird looking back for people in their 20s like dinner party feels a bit grand for like having a friend's round but it was really important to me that you that I would prepare a three-course meal and it was amazing and I wanted it to go so well but then I'd end up like sitting on the kitchen floor drinking vodka you know just like <laughs> stressed really unhappy with the whole like amount of pressure I put on myself um which was you know just something that happened in the course of it I guess and why do you think we do that why do we put that pressure on ourselves is it like you said, from our parents? Is it society? I think it's a bit of both. I think we are still carrying generational expectations of, you know, because we only really have our own families to look to for a model. And I think we, that was some of the things that I think happened with us is that our expectations of marriage, we could only really look to what we'd seen working for other people, but they weren't us. And it was a bit unfortunate that the relationship seemed to go very well until we were married and then there was a kind of sense of oh no we're trapped in this thing that actually we may have constructed it to look a certain way and we had all the things on paper but it wasn't working in the way that we kind of expected the happiness to come and I think that happens to so many people it's like because we are doing a checklist we're like okay so you need to have a partner and then you need to make commitments ideally then you need to buy a house and then maybe you need to have children and it's like you're going through these things but actually all of those things are way more complex and have these ups and downs in them that you're not really educated to understand 
So then it can be a very hard kind of reality to find yourself in and just think, oh, actually, why are we not happy when we've done everything we were supposed to do? Yeah, that's so true. You're like, we've ticked all the boxes on the list and now we're married. So where's this amazing contentment like you see in the movies in marriage? And you're like, oh, that was down to us (laughs) throughout. (laughs) Yeah. It's not just going to be gifted to you when you get married. Yeah. So if anyone's listening and they're about to get married or, or in starting a new relationship, and they're feeling those kind of stereotypical gender roles that have been handed down and they're trying to get out of that. Having been through that yourself, is there any advice that you'd give? Yeah. So I would, I think it's good to know yourself first. And and that's something that I did like post-marriage, which <laughs> I think for people who maybe do it differently, to have that awareness of what things you do like and what things you are good at. And, and being upfront about that, you know, so, and we, I mean, you kind of see that from your own place, but if you don't like tidying up and you don't like um, cleaning that much, it's good to be able to be upfront about that and say, well, how would we handle it? You know, I'm, I'm going to say I'm rubbish about this. Are you rubbish at this? Okay. So how are we going to do it? So just having the conversation at the beginning, identifying what you are happy to do and good at in terms of how you run your life. And then comparing that to someone else. And um, that's something that I've learned since is that now when I'm in different relationships, I want to know how that person manages their life and how they do things. And I notice the differences between us. So I will be aware of that. And I know there has to be conversations about, you know, if you're really tidy and I'm not, for example, then how is that going to work if you live together? Are we going to compromise? Um, Is one person going to do more of the chores than another? And I think just getting ahead of some of those conversations could be helpful. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I'm in a new relationship now and I've said I'm really bad at cleaning. Like, um, Like as in I don't do it. And also if I do do it, it just doesn't look as clean as when other people do it. So I have a cleaner, you know, and that's how I deal with that. Uh, and also I'm really bad at cooking. So I normally, you know, have ready meals or cook really simple dishes. And I think like, yeah, being open about those things. Whereas when I was younger, I might've been like, yeah, I can cook a three course dinner. Sure. Just read a recipe and it'll be fine. Um, now I'm like, yeah, no, it's not a strength, but we have other strengths. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's kind of just not being I think as you get older as well, you just, you're prepared to let more stuff go. It's like, yeah, I don't actually need to be perfect to everything, but as a younger person, I think I just had this from school. Like I just did well in my exams and I just had this theory of life that was just going to work hard, get the results and everything I did, I was applying that mindset and it doesn't work in relationships. So it was good to learn that. And you talked about, you know, living on your own and getting to know yourself. So how did that process go for you? Were there any like practical steps that you took to do that? Or was it just living alone that did it? I just think it's a real process of getting through um, the the devastation at first, because I was really horrified by having to go through the separation and being on my own. I was on my own in the house that we shared together and the first six months were just terrible I couldn't sleep at night and I just 
hated the whole thing. Um, but I had to kind of go through this process of really analysing why I felt like that. And it was a lot to do with just feeling that, again, the situation I was in was built for a couple that were trying to have a family. And I saw that everywhere I looked. I saw like the the things that we tried to create together. And I knew I had to get those things eventually out of my world so it was and it's not something you can do easily when you have a house and a joint mortgage and stuff but I had to go through it of figuring out like what little steps can I take to make it less traumatic really and uh, people give me gave me tips I think a therapist once told me that to have a light on I, I used to hate going home to the dark house and know that no one was there um, but she told me to get these light bulbs that you plug in and you can set them on a timer so I could time it so that maybe the house didn't always look dark and foreboding when I arrived home from work. So little things like that. And then also I just decided, you know, for example, with the cooking, I did a lot of that. And then when I was on my own, I only ate frozen pizza. And, you know, it was just I I learned my microwave could be used for cooking. It's just stuff like that where it's like, why are you, you don't need to perform anymore. So what can you do to make your life easier? So I cut out anything that was just more hassle than it was worth. I basically just continued going to work, but I saw everything else as sort of an optional, like I'm not going to put myself under pressure. And that allowed me to gradually heal through, through the process. And then I sold the house we split the proceeds. Then I moved into a flat, rented at first, and then I got through the divorce. Officially, all the paperwork, all the lengthy process. But it's it's kind of like that. I think you cannot like just heal in one day or anything, especially from such a long relationship. But it was those gradual steps that helped me get back to more of a functional life on my own. I love that tip as well of having a light on. I have a salt lamp. You know, the like pinky salt block things uh, with a bulb in. And I leave that on. So when, you know, when I'm out during the day, because it has this really warm glow by the door when you come in, it's like, welcome, um, even if no one's there. But also I have animals now, which helped too. Um, so it sounds like a an interesting process you went on as well, like living in the house making it feel like your own and selling it. What did it feel like when you got your own rented flat? Um, well, it was partly, I mean, it was a little bit of a lifestyle change because it was a lovely house um, in the suburbs in Surrey. And then I went back to London where I could only afford a really small flat to rent. And also I had a cat, Lottie. I, ha- I had a lot of difficulty finding a a landlord that would actually allow me to bring my cat so I landed in this flat with with the contents of a, of a house that would not fit into a tiny flat I had to sell loads of stuff I had to take loads of stuff to charity and so first me and and the cat in this flat it was kind of like okay life has taken a turn and it's a little bit alarming especially you know you think I, I kept thinking at the time, other people's lives as they get older are becoming more settled and more secure. And mine has sort of gone the other way. And that was that was hard. But ultimately it was my it was mine and it was my choice. And there was a sense of empowerment, I think, about look, at least I can make my own decisions now. 
and I purposely moved back to London because I wanted to meet more people and I didn't want to be, I kind of just, there was a sense that I was sort of just sort of like a ghost in my old life, like meandering around this house where it had made sense at the time, but it no longer felt like a place I could make my own. I had to be like, right, there's a practical way through this, but it has to involve new things. And so it was kind of throwing myself into that newness and then knowing that you will acclimatize and then I would find new things about the advantages to where I then lived. Obviously there was much more to do on the doorstep. I had places I could walk around and um, my commute to work was a lot easier. So that was part of the decisions that I was making. It's um, it's funny you said that you felt like everyone's lives was getting more secure and yours had been turned upside down. I totally felt like that too. And the, But the way I look at it now was just like I achieved what I what was my goal of the, at the time of buying a house, getting married, being in a relationship. And then I realized, OK, I've done that now. <laughs> what next? <laughs> Obviously, with a lot of crying on the floor in between. But, you know, uh, you you everyone's life was following that trajectory. But I'd achieved it early and then I was moving on. <laughs> yeah, I can really achieve it. And I think also you get you do get some wisdom from it that I think I don't know how I would have got that otherwise um, because I don't see like marrying someone and then having a big house or whatever. For a lot of people that that does sound like a sort of a dream you might aspire to. But and when I look at that, I often think, oh, no, because, you know, being can you imagine like being trapped in, in the, those kind of situations? And I And I know that it doesn't get you the happiness you might kind of assume it does. And I think that wisdom is quite valuable. Yeah, totally. Um, and so you in this new flat with your cat, I had a cat too, initially two cats, and I felt like a proper like divorced cat lady. I was like, Oh, my God, I'm wearing leopard print. I've got two cats. Everyone's going to be like, Yeah, she's divorced. And but I lent in and I enjoyed it. Um, what was it like? Did you start when you were living on your own dating again? She said you were going out and there was lots to do. How was that? process uh, again like quite a shock because again like I think this I think this happens to so many people but if you've been in a long-term relationship and you met someone in real life and it was all different when you then sort of land into online dating it just seems terrifying and I spent a lot of time like signing up to sites and then I remember just you know when you're not ready because sometimes people would message me and I would like throw my phone across the room. Like, oh no, no, it's awful. Um, and so I had to kind of get over that. And I think it's, I still think it's something that doesn't come naturally for me because I do, I think that you're lacking a lot of the context of the, of the person. So when I think back to people I have met through friendships, through work, through study, obviously you get to see that person in a kind of neutral environment you get to just be casual and build friendships and then you kind of know if you want a relationship with them or not whereas I struggled with the concept with online dating of yeah I'm looking at your photo really I don't know anything about you and then you have to kind of take a leap of faith and go on a date and then even when I first started going on dates I just I think I focused a lot on 
I've got to be a people pleaser and so I need to look nice and then I need to keep the conversation flowing and let's not make it awkward. So then I'd spend the whole evening doing that and then I'd go home thinking, I don't even know if I like that person. <laughs> I don't even know if what to make of that. So at first I would go on three dates and then um, it, I wouldn't usually know if I wanted it to continue until maybe the person would make a move and I would suddenly think, oh, no. Um, <laughs> or yes, but it's like a lot of the time I just didn't know myself. So I think you do, it's very difficult when you're trying to piece together your identity and you're not really sure what you're looking for. And you're kind of like, I found it to be a bit of a, like you're just trying to figure all this out with other people who are probably trying to figure out different things. So it's quite challenging. Yeah, I think I viewed online dating to begin with I was like oh my god this is amazing I just have access to all these people that might fancy me yay and then I was like really excited it was like this endless pot of potential sexual exploits um and then after I sort of got over that bit and I was very upfront with people that's what I was doing um after I got over that I was like oh how do you now like find someone for a relationship and I think yeah, the scary thing is you don't know anything really about them from their profile. So I always used to try and like meet people as soon as possible because for me it was the meeting that did the thing. You know, you got their vibe and everything. But I can totally relate to what you're saying about like, oh, I have to look nice. I remember, you know, especially on my first few dates, I was like, right, what am I going to wear? Because it needs to be like a bit booby to show off my asset. And like, you know, like it did my hair a certain way. And then actually, I think as I progressed and carried on meeting people, I thought, well, no, I'm not going to go booby. I'm specifically not going to go booby. I'm just going to wear like something that isn't, that doesn't feel for me sexually provocative and just get to know the person. But it is that like, I'm going on a date. I need to wear lipstick and a push up bra and, you know, and then. Um, and actually, for me, I found that when I was actually looking for a relationship, I was like, no, I want them to meet me. But that is quite hard. I'm a people pleaser. You know, I'm a comedian. So um, like you said, so it is I used to go on a lot of dates and people had always thought it had gone really well. And from my perspective it hadn't but I just wanted them to have a nice time <laughs> so I'd like kept the awkward silences to a minimum kept chatting laughed at their jokes and then afterwards I'd be like oh that was tiring that was like performing on stage for an hour rather than meeting a human so how did you how did you get through that bit or are you are you through it? No, I think, I th well, that's, I don't know. But I, I think I blundered through it, basically. I just, you know, I kept trying. And like you, I did, I'm not good at the chat on dating apps because for a start, I just don't understand this idea that you would sort of share details or anything with anyone that you don't know. So I don't really understand, you know, I know you can get into these lengthy conversations, but for me, it is like, well, if the person sounds okay, we should just go for coffee because then you can eliminate straight away. Like if, if it's just not working or they're nothing like they described, at least we should find that out early on. Um, so that, that helped. And then 
I did. I remember like the first date I went on where I actually found the person attractive. And that was quite shocking to me because <laughs> I texted a friend going, he came in and then went, he went off somewhere and I texted a friend going, I think I'm on a date with someone I'm attracted to. Oh my God. Like how, what? Because I think in my head, I had this image of also like we, you have a self image of, I thought, oh, I'm probably not the kind of person that has instant attractions to people. I, I need to know their personality and it needs to build over time because that was kind of the experience I had in the past. And then I realized, oh no, that's just, that is not true. That's just, that's a story I've been telling myself because it happened to align with the, what happened. But yeah, and that was weird for me. And that was quite fun because it was just, but also I was so nervous then because I guess I had it only just dawned on me at that moment that a lot of the other dates I'd been on, I hadn't felt much attraction. So I'd almost been just going, yeah, like providing a good dating experience to try and get a tick rather than actually being remotely engaged in the whole thing. So that was a good, good experience as well. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point. Like I remember on dating apps, I used to be like, oh, they're too hot. Like as in, there's no point in swiping yes on them because they're too hot and they won't fancy me. So there's no point. And then getting to the point where I was like, well, but they might. So why not? You know, and then I might meet them and not like them. But even I was like ruling myself out at the swiping stage because I was like, oh, no, that person won't like, like won't fancy me, which is ridiculous. So yeah it is it's such an interesting one internet dating because I I was like you that I met my ex early so I'd never internet dated before um so it was this whole new kind of world but the person I'm with now I did meet on an app so I'm like oh my god it worked one time yeah, it can work. And I, yeah, and I also went out with someone that I met on an app. So I know it works, but I think, I just think there are so many bad or confusing experiences that people have that when people say it works, it, there's a temptation to go, oh, but not, you know, not for me. Or it just sometimes feels like a huge mountain to climb. But in reality, it is just an introductory service. So I, I started to see it like that as well. And I started to go on dates thinking, look, it's you you'd otherwise be sat at home on the sofa so like go to a bar you like and you can have a cocktail you like and if this person is not your type of person so you just have a chat and be curious about them and that's it like and when you kind of de-escalate it like that then it becomes a little bit easier yeah and and I love connecting with people so I you know, and you can actually learn interesting stuff from people, even if you don't want to date them or like have interesting conversations. So exactly like you, I started to view it like that of like, oh, I'm just going to meet a new person today. You know, it's not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not searching for the love of my life. I'm going to, you know, just meet someone. Yeah. Have a nice cocktail, I think is a great like goal. For, for a day of like that's achievable you can have a nice time uh make it or you know and if you don't drink just have a nice mocktail you know or like tonight I'm gonna put my favorite lipstick on and go out like although I did definitely had been on dates where I was like I can't believe I put mascara on for this like I've, <laughs> I've wasted a mascara usage for this evening yes exactly 
Ding dong, it's the ad break. This podcast is sponsored by Penguin in the Room, an award-winning company that can manage your business's social media. They even manage our podcast, Instagram and Twitter. Just email info at penguinintheroom.com for a quote. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can by buying merchandise from our website, www.thedivorcesocial.com. Ding dong. So you you were living alone. You were getting to know you. You were going on dates. How? Because with my breakup, I found that it was incredibly hard originally and the emotion was so raw and I was like obviously crying and it all felt like that. And then I sort of felt like I was recovering and getting better. And then it sort of came in waves. Do you remember any of those waves and how did you deal with them? Yeah. So I think it's a it's a grieving process um, for not just the person that you were married to, but also the life. And, and for me, that life was very much like having a family together and all these things, which they did. That kind of feeling came back to me. And again, like sometimes you would go on a date that hadn't worked out and you can't always keep the positive attitude there are some times where I just feel like I'm going back um and also I found it hard socially as well because it's a bit like your status has changed and we had a lot of shared friends from university and I was probably the more introverted one in the couple a little bit quieter and my partner was more extroverted so he was the one who got the invitations but they were they were for both of us so it'd be like you know come both of you come to this thing and that thing and and so I lost some of that connection as well and um, I kind of, I remember just at work as well, just felt like it was so awkward to tell people. And uh, and you have to describe your life sometimes in work meetings. And I remember one meeting was with the US office and they're very enthusiastic about like introducing themselves and people were going, yeah, I'm this, I do salsa dancing with my husband and I'm this and this. And it came to me and I just said, I live alone with my cat. <laughs> and it was like no, no, you've got to think of more things to say. You've got to sell it better than this. There must be a better way. And so every time things like that would happen, I would really dip. Um, and so I think it is just a process and therapy helps. And also just, but also for me, it's about being honest about the times that are crap as well. I don't think we should have to pretend. And there's a lot of, like, I was seeing a lot sometimes about how fun it is to be single and solo empowerment and though I do think that's that there is value in that there are a lot of good things about being independent and I had to lean into that a lot I also think it's okay to say that you might be a bit lonely or you know acknowledge that it's tough because the world that's presented to us is very coupled up and often people reference their partnerships and their relationships as a key part of their identity and so for me, it was often like, you know, and I li- and with work, I think I also had that pressure of you think, OK, so I haven't got this. So I've got to be really good at my career because that now has to be the, the cornerstone of my identity. And I actually went on a sabbatical at one point um, and took three months off work. And that was a point where I had to w- realize, look, I am a person without my job. And I think that's really important as well. Like you can't just have these kind of you can't pin your identity on any one thing. It has to be a mix of things so that if you lose a job 
or you're not in a relationship anymore you, you have to still be able to know who you are and have other parts of your identity that you can lean into so I've really I really consciously try and do that now I don't see any one part of my identity as I try not to put everything into one thing because that's kind of how I was before and, and I realized the downsides of that that I can totally relate to that because I feel like my career has always been really important to me and I'd always you know I trained to be an actress and I'd been an actress first and foremost before a comedian and, and author and everything and then after lockdown when I, I was divorced and going through the process and acting had dried up because you know we'd all been in our houses um, I suddenly you know had lost my relationship status married woman and and also my acting work so it was a real like who am I because sometimes you can lean into and I definitely lent into work after the breakup um, and you know top tip for those introduce yourself things is um, come up with something that you're like quite funny that you're obsessed with and then it completely covers so like I'm really into pickles right now and I have pickles in every sandwich you know and then it completely makes everyone forget about the other you know bits if you don't feel comfortable about those but um there's so much that you said there that I was like, oh, I want to delve into all of that. Um, so I'm trying to like filter it through in, in my brain. But yeah, the identity thing. Yeah. And well, on the identity thing, um, I did, I wrote a blog post about changing my name. Um, but that took me a few years to come to that. So I changed my name when I got married and I was Mrs. X. And then that was a part of my identity confusion, really, because I remember in the time of the separation, I was getting loads of mail junk mail through the door and I remember just thinking I'm not opening this it's addressed to a person that doesn't seem to exist anymore like how can you be a missus person if there's no marriage anymore um but the idea of changing the name for some reason was also like a hard thing to go back to because I didn't really want to go backwards and at work I felt like everyone would notice you know I'd have to message the IT guys and think I'm changing my email address and then they'd go oh congratulations are you getting married like, no no I'm not. Um, <laughs> I did but you've probably forgotten um yeah so it's stuff like that and 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 for me but that I changed it by deed poll and I actually took a surname that was my grandma's um my, so my mum's maiden name and I kind of again it's linked a bit to feminism because I just thought no you know what like I'm not being defined by my dad I'm not being defined by an ex-partner I'm I'm being a new person and I don't really intend to give any of that up so and and that thing of all areas of your life I actually even have like photos on the wall now where I've got a picture of me in the middle and I've got pictures of me with friends me traveling me with family me with partners but like just not it's important to me that my self-image is is like that because before I had a picture of the wedding day a huge picture on the wall and I think it is that thing of it was the the identity was too tied into the relationship and being and that meant that if it wasn't going well I wasn't good so I have to avoid that again yeah definitely and it's so hard to change your name back when you say you're getting married everyone's just like okay a lot of the time they don't even need to see your wedding certificate they're just like oh okay and then take your word for it and then to change it back they're like we need to see your divorce certificate we need to 
hear what you ate for lunch yesterday and the day before is like ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I wanted uh, I wanted to pick up on what you said about dating as well because it is very em- empowering and I do talk about really enjoying like my sexual explosion. But then, yeah, of course, it's also really hard. And I remember, you know, dates that didn't go well and I came home and just like cried um, of like, oh, this is never going to be a nice thing and I'm just going to go on terrible dates forever. And And I did the thing of like watching romantic comedies and crying and, you know, thinking back about past relationships and it can be really hard. And also the rejection can be hard. Sometimes even if you, you know, you're not, you've only been on a couple of dates, so you're not even that invested in the person. And I I used to, I remember I used to feel even worse when I was sort of like, "Mm, do I want to go on another date with them? And then they'd be like, no, I don't want to go on another date with you. And I'd be like angry, (laughs) like how dare you not want to go on another date with me when I wasn't even sure if I wanted to go on another date with you. Um, And then also other people that you do get invested in in a really short period of time. And you're like, oh, my God, I can see things with this person. And then they just turn out to be a troubled human and say that they don't want to see you anymore or just stop talking to you. And that's that can be really like a punch in the gut. And I'm imagining like a punch in the gut in a cartoon where you get punched and then you move like through time back to a terrible time punch in the gut. Yeah, and and actually, I was ghosted by someone on date a dating app, and and I really struggled with that f- for weeks afterwards, thinking, but you liked me, but you know, I couldn't believe like and and the things that had gone on. I thought, how could you do that? Like, how could you just not? Because we were messaging and stuff, and I'd said something like, "Shall we go to this cocktail bar?" As um, and they just literally never responded, and I just couldn't contemplate that I thought how but don't you understand that I'm gonna I'm gonna spend ages trying to figure out what it was about the way I wrote that text message or something else I did and and you know looking looking back at it with distance yeah there are a lot of red flags and obviously it's more it's about the other person but I think when you're vulnerable and this is why it's so hard for people who are on dating apps with the vulnerability of a of a breakup or a divorce behind them it's that you you do your self-esteem is fragile and then when people start rejecting you or they do things it's really hard not to think that as a comment on me like that is a reflection on my character in some way or what it's like my prospects are not good anymore and actually it's got nothing to do with you but you can't see that. And and I think there's something that when people are in a long-term relationship, they are quite shielded from rejection because even though your partner can reject you, he <laughs> does a lot, but it's just that they they don't entirely disappear or annihilate your, your character in the same way that people can do. And some of the comments, I'm lucky I haven't had that many bad thing, bad comments, or uh, but I've had friends who the way that people will respond to them on dating apps has been horrible because obviously they're behind a screen and and you wouldn't say that to a person but you know some people feel like they can do whatever they want and that's quite scary yeah and I think being on social media and stuff and have been I've been trolled before and stuff 
the um for me the the sort of rude people straight away on the app I just get rid of um because there are some and they say really weird things when you first match with them but it it for me it was definitely the people that I'd been on some dates with and I was like oh I actually get on with this person and maybe there's an emotional connection and then you know and then maybe you you know have sex with them or do some bits and you're like oh and then they don't see you again and you're like oh I let you in and and so that can feel like a really big thing I you know I've definitely had a few of those also I was terrible to one man who was very lovely but um I just kept I wasn't dating anyone else but I kept going on dates with him and then I was you know struggling with lots of things and then I just didn't talk to him for ages and then I'd get back in contact and be like I'm really sorry I didn't talk to you for ages you know I haven't been dating anyone else or anything let's meet up again and then I'd meet up again and then I'd do exactly the same thing to him and I was like why am I doing these horrible things I had to like apologize to him over and over again so you know we can also be the perpetrators of that when we're going through stuff so you know, I wish I'd maybe just been more honest with him of like, I tried to be afterwards, but of being like, I don't know what's going on with me and you're great. Um, it's, it's nothing to do with you. I'm, I'm just, I don't know. But sometimes you don't know as well. And then you're like, how do I even tell them that? <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And yeah, I can definitely relate to that because there, there, are, there are people in relationships where you genuinely are not sure you don't actually know if it's right or you know and especially when you know you don't have that many cues from previous relationships because again for me like before I kept I was always comparing it back but I don't recall like having to make these big decisions before it seemed like it all just happened so naturally once it was going it was just going and it seemed to have this momentum that I wasn't sort of actively going around thinking about every decision we were just moving in together and then we were you know it and it does go like that sometimes whereas then when you when you are dating and trying to get to know someone there are sometimes these ups and downs where you think not sure about this person and but then you need to spend more time together and yeah and, and obviously you can get give mixed messages in those times and it's not easy to say either that you think it's not working out like I have never really worked out a good way of saying that yeah it's hard isn't it because you know when we're treated horribly we're like I wish they just told me and then when it's you you're like oh gosh how do I tell them and I think to a couple of people I just said it's been lovely to meet you but for me I wouldn't really want to meet up again but that even that sounds really harsh I don't know it's um it's difficult and also people always used to say to me you know let's still be friends and I'd be like no I've got friends I don't want to (laughs) I don't want to make friends. I'm not going on dates to make friends. I'm going on dates to, you know, find something beautiful. Um, so, so looking back now on all of that a few years in and listening to the podcast, is there any advice you would give maybe to you originally listening into the divorce social um, on you know, how to recover from divorce and breakup and how you're doing? Yeah, so I would say 
your independence is the most important thing you have and you will get more adventures and you're about to have all these new experiences that you wouldn't have had before. Uh, and I've got so many examples of things that I've gone and done since that then and traveling and holidays and things that I just would have, would have been outside of my comfort zone before. So if you can hang on through the immediate aftermath, which is really hard, I think, for most people, you're going to get this brand new life with loads of opportunities and it's there for you at the end of the healing process. I love that. And also you said earlier you were the introvert in the relationship and look at you coming on a podcast about divorce and sharing your experience. It's amazing. Yeah. And I think that's also part of my, like, I because I felt so much shame and embarrassment at first, I also think that like, I want to talk about it now because I don't want other people to feel that it's not, it's still a taboo subject, but actually the more we kind of just say, that other people are going through it and I remember when I found out some of my friends were divorced and they hadn't even told me and I remember being so shocked about it like why would you not like share this experience that it would it was more in the past for them but I think if we don't normalize things then a lot of people are stuck not being able to move forward and feeling like they're uniquely struggling with things that are actually an experience a lot of people have and if we are open about our experiences then I think it helps other people. I know for me, like when I found the podcast and in other things I've been through in my life as well, it's finding other people who've also been through it because that helps so much. Just you stop feeling so uniquely struggle. It's as if you're uniquely struggling and you think I'm not handling this well. I don't. I think I must be abnormally responding to this. And then when you hear other people, you just think, yes, like this is just a life thing. And that's, we can only really learn that if we are talking about it. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Oh, hi. Thank you for listening to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines. Please leave us a review. Please, please. Um, It would be super nice. They're lovely to read. They keep me cheery and happy and keep me going. Uh, But also it affects our listing in the podcast charts, uh, which are very important because that's how more people find the podcast. And I'd love to help more people get through those really tough heartbreak and divorce times. And they're more likely to find us if we're higher up on the charts. So if you'd like to leave a review, I'd love you forever. You can leave them on iTunes is the big one or most podcast platforms do them as well. I'll take all the reviews you've got to give. You can also uh, get in contact on Twitter and Instagram at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. We have a website, thedivorcesocial.com and we have a Patreon account, which means that you can support the podcast for as little as £2 a month and it helps me with all the admin costs. It also means you have access to our 90 style divorce and heartbreak chat room and there's lots of exclusives on there, little bits of audio that you don't get in the main podcast and some giveaways as well. So I'd love to see you over on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Samantha Baines and please leave a review. Did I say that already? Please leave a review. Love you forever.